All right, church, go ahead and grab a seat. That's enough of that. You're being too friendly this morning. Come on. Go ahead and grab a seat. We're going to get started. Hopefully you had a chance to meet somebody new here, and if not, don't worry. Afterwards, you can still do that. Take advantage of that time after the sermon, okay, or after the, the service. All right, we are this morning in Acts chapter 21, and I'm not sure. I'm getting a little feedback on this, maybe just a tad down or something. I'm not sure exactly what you got to do. Thank you. That sounds better. Uh, Acts 21. So if you can make your way there. As a church, we have been walking through the book of Acts, and uh, we'll find ourselves this morning. Actually, I'm going to dip a little bit into last week's passage, starting in verse uh, 36 of chapter 20, and then we will read this morning uh, through verse 17 of 21, okay? So if you don't have your Bibles, there's one uh, in front of you, should be somewhere in the row ahead of you, otherwise the words will be up on the screen, and just really want to encourage you to have your Bible out if you could this morning, and just, I think you'll find it helpful uh, just to sort of follow along, all right? All right, so verse... 36 of chapter 20. Here we go. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that he would not, they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight coast course to Kos. And the next day to Rhodes and from there to uh, Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. For the, there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage to Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people were there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem and came, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had gone, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we approach your word this morning, we um, recognize that it is eternal and it is true. 
And our request um, to you this morning is simply that you would take this word, your word, Lord, and that you might write it on our hearts. Use it this morning to form us, Lord, into the people that you have made us to be. Lord, I pray that our hearts would receive it, our lives would reflect it, Lord, and that uh, your spirit would be here today among us. We recognize that he's here already, Lord, and I just pray that we would have an encounter with you. Lord, make yourself known through the preaching of your word. We ask these things in the holy, mighty, and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, one of the favorite books that I have in sort of my library that I have throughout the years gone to over and over and over again to read with my children um, is a book by William Bennett called the, I think, The Book of Virtues, maybe. Maybe it's, it's a very familiar, very common book. And the way the book works is it just is broken down one virtue after another. And in each category, there is songs, there's poems, there's story after story that sort of reinforce that virtue. Um, and one of the, vir- the virtues that I find myself probably more than any in that book turning to um, as I read it with my children is the virtue of friendship. It's, uh, it, in, in that book, there's story after story after story that sort of reinforces the meaning, the definition, the significance, the value of friendship. Now, this is not uncommon. I mean, for kids, if you just sort of survey children's literature or perhaps just take a glance at Pixar, you will see that one of the predominant things in sort of children entertainment, literature, movies, what have you, is the theme of friendship. All the way from Helen Keller and Ann Sullivan to Woody and Buzz Lightyear. Kids are reminded over and over and over again what friendship is can look like. But here's the deal. As adults, I think oftentimes we forget. There's not, it doesn't seem to be as sort of a romanticized version or ideal of friendship that is put before us as adults, and I know there's children in the room, but as adults, there doesn't seem to be the same emphasis. I don't know if you noticed that or not. Not just in literature, not just in, the, in Hollywood, just in songs, but I would say also in our life. I know this is true for me. There's a number of years ago where, not number of years ago, there's like two years ago where I was reminded, I, feel, I found myself sort of just looking up sort of at the height of the pandemic and looking around and realizing I don't think I have that many friends. I don't know if I have other individuals in my life that I can really bear my heart with, that are gonna come alongside of me and show me what it means to be a friend. There was a friendship deficit in my life. While as a child, I was filled up with the value of the importance and the significance of friendship, as an adult, there seemed to be a a significant deficit. I don't know if you can relate to that this morning, but I suspect if you are just a normal human being today, all of you, you can probably in some way, shape, or form identify with that deficit. Now, here's the good news of Acts 21. This morning, as we consider God's word, we are reminded of the depth and the meaning of real friendship. And not just are we reminded of its value. Here's where it gets really good. We can see not just is it important, 
it's also possible. It's also possible. That's what we'll see this morning in Acts 21. And so to sort of help us see this, I just skipped over all of my introduction, but that's okay. I'm just gonna dive right in. To help us see this this morning, three things I wanna bring to your attention. First, let's consider together from God's word the necessity of friendship. Second, let's, ex- let's, let's consider the essence or the experience. What does it look like, the look of Christian friendship? And then third, we'll consider together the, the purpose, the purpose of Christian friendship. You know, yet last week as we considered leadership in the church, you know, as the gospel of Jesus is spreading across the world, as we see it in the book of Acts, we've discovered that there is, just as Brother Eric prayed for us earlier, there is a new way to be human. Last week we considered how there's a new way to lead Leadership for God's people looks radically different, and thank God for it. This morning, what we'll see is there is a new way. See, this newness of life makes its way into every area, every facet of our life, and that includes friendship. Brothers and sisters, there's a new way to be a friend, and that's good news. The necessity of Christian friendship in this passage. As we read the passage, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but the presence of friends is all throughout it. Just, just the, the presence is all throughout the section from the opening scene in verses 36 to 38. We see this gripping scene that we considered last week where Paul's at Miletus and he's saying goodbye to elders, the church of Ephesus. And it is so obvious that these individuals are deeply connected as they, as they stand there and they pray and they weep for one another. Tears are filling up their eyes because they love each other, because they are friends. Then at the beginning of the section in 21, we see that the narrative changes and now Luke inserts himself and when we had parted from them and set sail, Luke now is joining him, joining Paul on the journey. So Paul is not accompanied by just nobody. He's got Luke, he's got friends with him and we've seen this all throughout sort of his journeys so far. Luke Luke describes that goodbye saying, and I love the fact, and the ESV version, as much as I love the ESV version, there's some of your versions may say it differently. And mine says, and when we had parted from them, some, if you have a CSB, I'm not sure exactly which other versions it are, but some might even say, and when we had torn ourselves apart from them. And that, to me, gets at the essence of what's going on. These individuals, when he says goodbye to the elders at Miletus from from Ephesus, when he says goodbye to them, he describes it, Luke does, as tearing himself apart. In order to tear themselves apart, their lives have to be knitted together in the first place, right? And here they are being torn apart from each other. You can sort of understand the, just the, the deep emotional significance of this scene. At Tyre, there's another scene that's similar to it where they are hugging each other at the coastline, saying goodbye to Paul again as he moves along before he gets on the ship. The whole families, all the families, the men, the women, the children are all there together on the beach saying goodbye to him. Throughout the journey, he goes from one place to the next and it is so obvious that the community of God is a critical aspect of the mission of God. From Tyre, he heads to Ptolemaeus. He's greeted there immediately by the brothers. He stays for a day on to Caesarea where he's welcomed by and stays with Philip in verse eight. From Caesarea, now he's accompanied by some of the disciples 
Um, Luke, you know, likely is, is so concerned for Paul that he decides to join him. He heads to Jerusalem, stays at the house of Manasseh and Cyprus. In verse 17, he arrives at Jerusalem, and what happens immediately? The brothers there receive him. See, all throughout this section, we see the presence of friends scattered along the journey. And, and this is remarkable because it shows us that Paul needs friends. But, but it should not be surprising. It should not be surprising. If you go all the way back to Acts chapter 2, sort of the banner verse that we oftentimes refer to that sort of hangs over the whole book of Acts is a description of what Jesus made. He made a new community in verse 42 that's described like this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This from the beginning of this new life that they were to live, they were to live it together. Now, as we've been reading the book of Acts, it's been so obvious. And Luke, the author of the book, goes to great lengths to show us that as remarkable as a man as Peter and Paul and the other disciples, Priscilla and Aquila, these other individuals are, that really it's God who's doing the work, right? We've seen this over and over again. God is working through these individuals. God is the one who's doing the work. It's been obvious. The work could not happen apart from God, and I think what we would also be right to say is, as we look at the passage this morning, is the work could not happen apart from friendship. In fact, that's not how God designed it. He designed it for these people to be. It's a part of the plan from the very beginning. I think it should strike us as, 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 as pretty remarkable that even the mighty apostle Paul needed friends. It should tell us something about our need for friends, right? As I read the passage and consider the reality of friendship, the depth of human relationship throughout the community of God, something inside of me, I hope inside of you as well, says, yes, that's what I want. And I think it comes from a couple of reasons. What is it, if you feel something inside of you this morning, sort of welling up, just considering his journey, meeting one friend after the other, welcoming him in, loving him, encouraging him, praying for him, and you feel something inside of you well up, that something is probably coming from two places. One, a deficit in your life, a need that you have for friends. And two, it's also likely come from the fact that you were made to have friends. You were made to live among friends. Just like, like God wrote this story, this journey that Paul and we're seeing the early church take in Acts 1 and he, he, throughout the book of Acts and he sort of baked in this idea of fellowship and friendship and community as a part of, strategic part of that plan. So when he made you and me, he also knit us to be the type of people that aren't good at living by ourselves. <laughs> You know, Tim Keller, when he talks about this, he has some really helpful things to say. He kind of points back to Genesis chapter two. He says, hey, before sin entered the world, when everything was perfect, God says all that he made was good. But he notes one exception. Adam was alone. Keller says, Adam wasn't lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. His ache for friends is the one ache that is not the result of sin but the result, rather, of his design. God made us in such a way that, that we couldn't even enjoy paradise apart 
from friends, human friends. If you're here this morning and you are struggling, maybe, as I suspect there are some this morning with loneliness, that word should be an encouragement to you and remind you, you are not a weirdo. The loneliness you feel in your heart, in your life, is not strange. It is normal. It's a sign that you are a human being. The longing, the passion for friendship is not wrong. It's just a sign that you're a human. So you see, to live your life without friends, strictly focused on, as some of us in our day and age are so tempted to, strictly focused on things like work, school, sports, fill in the blank, is not just a matter to just focus on those things and avoid community, push friendship to the side, treat it as if it is marginal in your life. That is not just you refusing to sort of follow in the pattern of Paul the apostle. It's you refusing to follow in the design that you were made. Refusing to sort of, sort of kicking against the, the exact way that God made you. We all need friends. Point two, as we look at Acts 21, we also don't just are just reminded of the necessity of friendship, but we're also given a glimpse of sort of the experience of friendship or the, the essence of it. What is the look of Christian friendship? Well, just a few sort of banners as I sort of looked through this passage. I think the first one that stuck out to me was, was friendship within the body of Christ, Christian friendship looks like affection. It involves deep love for one another. And again, you see this all throughout, from these emotionally charged scenes, saying goodbye, weeping, praying for one another, you see that these individuals are affectionate towards one another. Here's the deal, they love each other and they show it. For some of us, finger pointed right here, that is easier said than done. You know, I, so much to be grateful for in my home growing up. My parents, lovely, they were here last week, lovely Christian, I would say some of the best, men and women, okay? So thankful for them. And in our family, you know, in, you know they were, the way that they were raised, very Irish Catholic you know, culture, you just don't really show or say how you feel. You know, and there was no questioning throughout my life their deep love for me. They had different ways of showing it, right? But for me as an adult, one of the things that I've had to grow, and I've been challenged, I think of this brother here. I can think of so many of you. There's a brother back there. Um, so many of you that God has put in my life that has showed me, hey, guess what? If you love someone, you should show it. You should say it. You should remind them just in case they miss it how much they mean to you. Now, it, for me, it kind of forces me outside of my comfort zone. I'll be honest. But as we read this book, this book, you know what I've discovered? It's not optional. <laughs> like, just look at the way that the Apostle Paul speaks with words of affection and love as he writes letters from one church to the next. It's amazing. And throughout their journey, these are individuals who love 
one another, and they're not afraid to show it. You know, I think another sort of side note is not just are they affectionate, they're, you know, emotions filled here, but look at the way that they're making decisions in this setting. You know, there's this, um, several times throughout the narrative, we see that the community, Paul's friends, attempt to discourage him. Remember, he's on the way to Jerusalem. Paul knows what's waiting for him in Jerusalem, and they do too. And they love this brother. And so you know what they do? They say, don't go. We don't think that's a good idea over and over again throughout the text. Now, there are some theologians, some scholars who think that maybe this journey that Paul's insistence to go to Jerusalem was a sign of his disobedience to the spirit. And God tried multiple times to warn him and and Paul just kept going. I don't think that's at all what's happening here. Paul's made it very clear early in the book of Acts. Luke has shown us that, that Paul has been called by God to go to Jerusalem. And these friends show up in his life and they know what it means for him and they don't want him to do. It's a good maybe question in community group to maybe ask, should Paul have gone to Jerusalem? It'd be a good thing to sort of think as you, as you listen to the way that his friends discourage him from going and he presses on, should he have gone? It'd be a good topic of conversation. Many theologians have divided over it throughout the years. But the point is, they try to stop him. Why? Because they love him. Because they love him. Each time they try, though, Paul's resolve is strengthened. So affection. I think secondly, what stands out to me about the essence of friendship, Christian friendship, is not just affection, but also availability. You know, throughout the story, and Paul is showing up, and he's meeting people, honestly, who he doesn't even know. We have no indication that many times that he's ever met some of these individuals before, yet here they are. And as he shows up, do you know what they do? They open not just their homes to this brother, also their lives. They welcome him in. They are available. They're not, they don't have an agenda or a schedule that he's sort of rubbing up against. And they say, listen, Paul, maybe come back in a week when I can build you into my calendar, where I can make room for you. But rather, the friendship is such a priority, the community is such a necessity that when he shows up, they're available. They're just there. And I would say, as a, maybe just culturally speaking, in our day and age in the West, my goodness, brothers and sisters, do we have some ways to grow in this area? And again, I'm standing there at the top of the line for this one, okay? There's, there's so much that I have learned, and my wife is from Belize in the Caribbean, there's so much that I've learned and appreciated about her culture that is just dramatically different than where I, what I'm used to. And one of the things that I think they are just knocking it out of the park in is this idea of availability, hospitality. Somebody walks by, you invite them in. Somebody has a need, you meet it. You don't say, wait, let me, I can get back to you in four weeks. And I understand we have things going on. I'm not trying to say like, trying to make you feel guilty or full of shame because you live a busy life, not at all. What I am trying to say is in the middle of that busyness, like we have to make room for one another. This stuff is not just going to happen, right? But when it does show up on our shore, will we open our doors? When there's a friend, a, a person from our church who has a need, are we ready, like they were, to welcome them in, not just to our homes, but also our hearts? Are we available? Are we available? They, they show their, their, their availability, I think, by demonstrating hospitality, but also they show it with a deep commitment to prayer. In Acts 21, we see several scenes where they are praying together. When they are together, their times are filled with prayer. They're praying. You know, they're not just hanging out to sort of hang out. No shade, that's okay. 
Just enjoy one another from time to time? Yes, do it, of course. License, freedom, go. Start today. But they're also praying for and with their brother, with their friend. Over and over again, we see this throughout the book of Acts. Again, going back to uh, chapter two, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This was a commitment. It was a strategic part of the plan. When you're spending time together, pray with and for one another. And then thirdly, as we consider the essence of their friendship, they were not just affectionate towards one another. They were not just available for one another when needed. They also, and I think this is crucial, they were about something. They were about something else. I'm just trying to make the A's all line up here, okay, so I can remember it, all right? They were about something. Their friendship existed for a purpose sort of just beyond them. You know, C.S. Lewis has written quite a bit about this and some of the ways that he talks about it in his book, Four Loves, where he specifically is speaking to the idea of friendship. Is he, he says, essentially, their eyes, friends, are side by side, is his description. And their eyes are looking out. Their eyes are looking toward something. He says, that's why those, this is C.S. Lewis speaking, quote, okay, not Doug Fern. This is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. According to Lewis, no friendship can arise unless there is something for the friendship to be about. A common interest. I think, you know, just in the world, we see this in ba- you know, baseball or video games or books or loving the poor. Lewis writes, the typical expression of friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Now, as Christians, we can, we can draw, what can draw us into community, into friendship, certainly is a desire, is a longing. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, there's a void in your life where friends is concerned, certainly that should help you lean into the community of God, want to develop friendship. But ultimately, what establishes our friendship and makes it deep and meaningful and lasting is not our shared longing for friendship, but our shared identity as the people of God, our common purpose. Certainly, this is true in the book of Acts as we see people from all walks of life, different classes, different races, different generations, they come together by and for the sake of the gospel. One commentator writing on this passage says, the interspersing of travel and scenes of community life serves to draw remarkably dispersed groups of believers together in a single narrative. Believers who could not gather, as did Christians in Jerusalem, but who nevertheless are connected by the gospel's activity among them. See, the wonderful thing about our friendship that we can establish is that it exists for a much greater, much higher, much more transcendent purpose than just the friend that's next to you. And this is what draws us together. So, I mean, hopefully, as we just consider the the experience of friendship, how friends should be affectionate, showing affection, demonstrating affection, speaking words of affirmation and affection and encouragement in one of another's lives, Hopefully, as you get that idea, how friends can be available and how they can be about something, hopefully, you're thinking to yourself right now, sign me up. I hope so. 
I know I am. Hopefully you're thinking, I want some of that in my life. But here's the deal. As we go to the last point, the possibility of friendship, or sorry, the purpose, wrong P, the purpose of friendship. Here's the deal. Friendship is beautiful. It is needed. And it should look a certain way. God gives us a wonderful manual to help cultivate friendship right here. We also have to understand its purpose. Going back to C.S. Lewis, you know, one of the things he commends the ancients for is that they saw sort of human friendship as the ultimate of loves. Again, I think in the modern world, we see it as more marginal. They saw it as the most praiseworthy of the loves, the very best that we could experience. And while I've spent 20 minutes showing you the need for it in the text and in our life, we have to recognize that the ancients weren't completely right. It isn't, in fact, the best love, human friendship, that we can know. While it's beautiful, it never quite, and most of us know this from our own friendship experiences, it never quite matches the beauty and the wonder of divine love, of divine friendship. In this life, friends, even the best ones, can let you down. They can not be there when you need them. They can, newsflash in Iowa City, move. <laughs> they can turn their back. They can not live up to the expectations, to your idea, to your needs. But guess what? They're human. <laughs> they are like you and me, limited. It's true. C.S. Lewis says, friendship then, like the other natural loves, is unable to save himself. It must invoke the divine protection if it hopes to remain sweet. As Christians, we know that there is, in fact, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And our best friends are at the, their best when they point us to that one great true friend, the one who will never let us down, the one who will never move away, the, the, the one who will never turn his back on us. Talking about Jesus. Your friend is at their best when they point you to the greatest friend that we all long for and desperately Need. And here's the great thing about Jesus. Do you know what he does? He speaks words of affection. He loves us as friends and he shows it. He doesn't leave you guessing where you stand with him, right? In fact, he says, I don't longer call you to his friends, servants, but I call you friends. This is the language that Jesus uses with us. And then he lays his life down and the greatest demonstration of love that humanity has ever seen to show just how much you mean to him. He is a man full of affection and not afraid to show it. Not just that, this friend is available nonstop. He's always there. Matthew 11, he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. What an invitation, an invitation that is always extended, and his arms are always 
open. And as we find ourselves falling into his arms, coming into his presence, our burdens, our sin does not repulse him. He doesn't push us away when we don't measure up. In fact, he says, it's all the more reason to come closer. I'm all the more available to you and for you because you are heavy laden, because you have struggled, because you have sinned. This friend is always available. And not just that, with this friendship, you are absolutely together in friendship for something else. Now, I think of the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's gospel when he commissions the disciples and he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is the mission. And a couple of maybe just a few shorter words, go make gospel friends. Go, go tell others about the wonderful friend of Jesus. And he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We get to, in this friendship, partner with Jesus as he spreads his goodness and his grace around the universe. You get to sign up for something that, is, that transcends even your experience, your reality. You get to take the goodness, the sweetness, the loving kindness that you have received from this great true friend and you get to herald the news that Jesus is a friend of sinners. As I was reflecting on this, I think it was yesterday morning, there was a hymn that came to mind. As we think about the, the friend of Jesus, we're gonna sing a hymn that's also about the friend that we have in Jesus, but there was another hymn that came to mind about the uniqueness of this friend, about the specialness of this friend. No, not one. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a beautiful hymn. Just listen to the words. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. I'm gonna try really hard not to sing it because I just wanna sing it, but you don't want that. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. No one else could heal our soul's diseases. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide you till the day is done. There is not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. And this friend this morning is available to every one of us. If you would just come to him, just put your heart your life, fall into his arms and he will receive you and promises to restore you. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word as it comes to us this morning. We find ourselves often in this world alone, struggling to just sort of make it and oftentimes Lord, we uh, push friends away. Oftentimes, we cannot be a good friend. But Lord, as we consider your word this morning, and you have, with it rightfully, sort of cast a vision for what 
friendship can be. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a church that embodies the friendship of Jesus, that first and foremost receives it. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that does not know you as their friend, God, I pray that they would turn to you. Thank you for the the trust, the confidence that we have that you will receive them if they do just that. Lord, but I also pray that we would be a people who reflect, who practice friendship, who can't get enough of it in our lives, Lord. I pray that you would help us to just recognize our great need, Lord, and put ourselves forward as a friend, a friend that we can be, one that looks, follows, and points directly to Jesus. We ask all these things in his mighty name, amen.